Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. The first weekend of 2019 and the conflict between several provinces and the federal government is in the trenches or the courts, carbon tax and more. I spoke with Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe about that and a lot more that's coming up in this calendar year that'll be of great interest and importance to all of us. Have a listen to what the Premier had to say. It's what I call the 2019 federal election what-if question. What if Justin Trudeau and his Liberal Party are re-elected on October the 21st with a majority federal government based largely on the support the Liberals will have received from voters in Ontario and in Quebec? If the remainder of Canada largely were to reject the Liberals, Yet they form a majority government, mostly predicated on Quebec and Ontario voter support. Then what happens? Brian Peckford is the former Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. We spoke about that, and I took some calls. With the carbon tax now demanded and to be enforced by Ottawa and gasoline prices lower, what's going on? What lies ahead for 2019 as far as gas prices across Canada is concerned? And how will any or all of this affect what the average person is spending and will be spending driving to work, uh, the kids to their games, and just getting on with their lives. Dan McTague, Chief Petroleum Analyst at GasBuddy.com and an 18-year Liberal MP, joined me to speak about that. We're very fortunate to be able to speak with Premier Mo on a fairly regular basis about matters that, that, that really, really are of significant concern and interest to the entire country, to Western Canada, uh, and specifically to the province of Saskatchewan. Premier, thank you very much for taking the time again, and a very happy 2019. Well, happy new year to you, Roy, and to all of your listeners. Let me ask you, first of all, what are the issues that you consider to be most significant to your province, to Western Canada, and to this country for 2019? Well, for our province, we have a number of... Uh you know, a service uh, slash capital infrastructure issues uh, that we are working quite hard on uh, here and have been for the last number of years. Uh, this year, we're fortunate in in the fact that we're going to open uh, some fairly substantial uh, infrastructure uh, investments that we have that are going to offer an expanded and enhanced service uh, delivery uh, to the people of the province. We have the Saskatchewan Hospital in North Battleford that's going to open, offering uh, an enhanced uh, Supports to those uh, most affected uh, by, by uh, mental health challenges uh, here in Saskatchewan, and it'll be the largest investment uh, uh, in in uh, in in the in uh, mental health here in the province. I think in the history of the province, we have a children's hospital opening up that will advance the, both the quantity and quality of our our health care to Saskatchewan residents. So we're quite excited uh, to move forward with these types of pro- projects and services in the province. The only way we're able to pay for those or to invest in those on, as a government on behalf of uh, the people we serve is uh, with a strong economy. We need a strong agricultural sector, potash, uh, uranium mining sectors. Uh, we need a strong manufacturing sector that's facing uh, 
significant headwinds with respect to steel tariffs uh, right now that we're working actively with our manufacturing sector, EVRAS and others, so that they can access some of the tariff dollars, essentially, that our federal government is is charging uh, them and other countries at the border so that they can reinvest that back in and, and stay viable uh, here in, in Canada. We have a, a vibrant forestry industry that's facing uh, continued uh, uh, softwood lumber uh, challenges, uh, some of that being made up for by the, uh, the 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 dollar differential that we have right now, but in, I would note in our First Nations, in our uh, our, our uh, forestry industry, we have the highest percentage First Nations involvement in ownership and and employment uh, in in excess of thirty percent of those uh, involved in our forestry industry, albeit comparatively small to British Columbia and, and even Alberta. Um, it's a very stable industry, and it's stable, uh, I would put forward, uh, due to uh, the involvement of communities and most significantly First Nations communities. And then ultimately, uh, probably some of the largest challenges that we have uh, in, in preserving that investment is our is the energy differential and some of the headwinds that we're facing with Bill C-69. And, and ultimately, uh, the, the imposition of a federal carbon tax that we are uh, very positive in, in the fact that we're going to fend that off uh, going to court on February the 13th. So that is uh, Saskatchewan's next 12 months, I think, uh, very much in a nutshell. Yeah, I, I find it really uh, interesting that you started with health care. Because this is most fundamentally the, the matter that, that, that each and every Canadian, Canadian's life is uh, entwined with. And, and we, have, we have a health care system that is nationally, that is under tremendous stress. Four million people in this country have no family doctor. That's a really, really significant concern. And the wait times to get, to get seen are extremely concerning. So the health care can never slide off the map, never slide out of consciousness, and it has to be part of the national discussion. But I'd like to talk to you now about or have you share with me the, the, where you stand, what, what your message is to the federal government over this, the fact that we now have – you're going to court to, 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 to battle, to fight the federal government of Canada – on the carbon tax, not just province of Saskatchewan, it's more than one province, Ontario. Similarly, we'll talk to Premier Ford tomorrow about, about the carbon tax. It's disturbing to have number, several provinces battling the federal government in court over an issue that could it should have been resolved. I believe that your province has done everything that you, you're required to do to uh, to meet the, uh, the 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 expectations of Ottawa, and yet here you are going to court fighting the federal government of Canada. That's not a good start to 2019. Yeah, we 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 talk about uh, you know working with collaboration or collaborative uh, um, federal federal provincial uh, relationships, uh, not coercive federal provincial relationships. And and I think this is a party of federal government that ran on on being collaborative with the provinces. And I think in fairness, they they did start out that way at the the first uh, number of months of their of their time in office, but it most certainly has shifted to more of a, a coercive nature, if you will, um, when it comes to attempting to impose uh, these these uh, types of policies, carbon tax, Bill C sixty nine, that essentially will chew away and and at the wealth of of all Canadians, and I, I think that's important for for all Canadians to uh, you know just pause and and have a look at this. Um, you know, there's there's discussion right now about how. Uh, whether or not a, a carbon tax has been effective in, in British Columbia. Their, their emissions have went up. Uh, there, there's, there's no denying that. Their emissions have went up in the time that they have a carbon tax. But they should be able to do that in British Columbia as a province if they choose. 
we need to understand the great diversity that we have across uh, this nation and what drives the economy in British Columbia is good for Canada, but very different than Saskatchewan and Alberta and Manitoba and Ontario and other areas of the nation. And we need to have that that regional uh, or provincial uh, um, view, if you will, on how we can, you know, do right by the environment, but also do right by our economy for for all Canadians as we, we you know, we... We hear these these comments. I, I probably mentioned one of them. Do we have a nation? And I heard uh, Premier Higgs, uh, you know, do we have a nation or a notion? Um, I think and I hope we all do believe we do have a nation, but it has to be a collaborative one. It can't be one that's dictated to from Ottawa. One size doesn't fit all from coast to coast to coast in this nation, and we need to get back to the table where we can actually work together on, on proper policy for for the wealth and health uh, of our nation. Premier, when when we talk about economic success in this country, the energy sector is such a critical and integral part and can play such a massively important role. And, 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 and the fact that we're losing out on billions of dollars uh, annually in, in, in income for our energy sector, we're importing 800,000 barrels of foreign oil each and every day into Canada. Very concerning. It doesn't do much, does it, for foreign investors who are looking at, at perhaps investing in Saskatchewan or investing in Alberta or investing in this country nationally. If they if their feeling is that we're not we don't we're not on top of our game, why should they put their money here? Well, you're absolutely right, Roy. And there's 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 two points to this conversation that ultimately end uh, with with something that Daryl Brickers are probably going to talk to you about, and that's that's. Uh, you know, our household wealth or our household uh, family incomes and, and how people are feeling about that as we move forward. But the first is uh, the preservation of the investment that we have. And I spoke earlier of uh, of our manufacturing industry that's bringing steel uh, into the nation and uh, paying a tariff to the Canadian government on that. And we're working very closely with the Canadian government to ensure that those tariff dollars are coming back into that industry so that uh, you know, a, a challenging situation uh, right now from that is somewhat beyond uh, our control provincially, uh, most certainly, but we need that investment back into that industry uh, because they're paying it as they bring that, that product in to preserve those jobs that we already have. In many cases, by, by foreign investments such as Everest uh, in, uh, in the steel plant uh, north of Regina, employing thousands of people uh, directly and indirectly uh, in that city. When you go to the energy industry, uh, we are losing that foreign direct investment, and we're losing it uh, to the loss of, uh, of not only Canada's uh, wealth and health, as I say, and, and people's uh, jobs, uh, Canadians' jobs uh, right across the nation, but we're also uh, losing uh, when we talk about uh, what uh, Minister McKenna's favorite topic is, and that's the, the environment and climate change, because you know, I, I will provide two examples in our province, uh, how we're moving forward with our industry to actually have a positive impact on emissions. And one is in the small-scale uh, SAG-D projects up in the Lloydminster area. Another one announced uh, earlier this week, um, $350 million investment. So we are attracting some investment in the industry, 25%, 20 to 25% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, virtually eliminating methane. We introduced a water flood program in the, the more uh, focused to the southern areas of the province and the energy industry that is more efficient in the harvesting of energy that they do, which is good for competitiveness. Again, a 20 or 25% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions is going to be revenue neutral to the, to the province, likely revenue positive as we move forward with a more sustainable product, but also revenue positive as we're going to be uh, more efficient in bringing more energy out of the ground. We need, a, we need a pipeline to deliver this sustainable product to the world. We can do this with innovation and working together as Canadians um, rather than 
continuing to tax everything that moves. Let's talk about the pipeline issue. Um, Montreal Economic Institute uh, had a poll, run a poll of Quebecers through Leger, and they found that 66% of Quebecers favor Western oil coming to the province, and 45% of them, which is a significant majority over any other option, chose pipelines as their favored um, option to bring the oil from Western Canada to Quebec. And yet, and yet, nothing's happening, Premier, but we are importing 800,000 barrels a day, foreign oil, into eastern, eastern refineries. So the pipeline issue remains tremendously significant. Do you have any sense that this is going to meet any kind of um, acceptable resolution in this calendar year? And those those uh, those those opinions, I would hope, uh, wouldn't surprise uh, the majority of Canadians. As uh, you know, we do have a rich history of working together. We 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 have uh, differences of of opinion from time to time, but but uh, we are we are Canadians, and we do work together for the greater good of our nation. So those those numbers most certainly don't surprise me. And I will be engaging, as I know other premiers will. Um, with with Canadians across uh, this nation in the fact that we need to continue to work together to get our, our sustainable products to market so that we can benefit uh, across this nation, uh, not just in, in certain regions of it. And we, we want to have that conversation, and I'll be having that conversation with, with my counterparts and others uh, in Quebec and Ontario and, and, and in Atlantic Canada, as well as on, on the West Coast. This is an important uh, conversation for us to have with respect to Energy East. Um, let's look at what we have and what we need. You know, we have, or we had, a, a proponent with uh, solid investment, uh, solid investment access. We had a, uh, and will have, a sustainable product in the energy product in the prairies that I just talked about. We have, uh, in many cases, the proponent had the right of way um, for for the majority of the uh, the route, and we have the port access in New Brunswick, and we have the Canadians that are are looking for the good paying jobs that could come from this nation building project. All we require is a regulatory environment that is solid to allow this investment to flow into our nation to benefit all Canadians, and I would say benefit the world from an environmental perspective. Um, and we get Bill C-69, which essentially just the, the, the thought and the conversation of that uh, that bill scared the proponent off or, or moved the proponent uh, into other areas of, of, uh, of North America, essentially. And that's, that is just wrong, and we'll be advocating uh, for that pipeline and for a stronger Canada in the months ahead. Yeah, and we have the truck convoys in your province in Alberta. Uh, I've seen you tweet about uh, the ones in Saskatchewan, and now there's going to be one that's going to be going to Ottawa. This is grassroots, grassroots people, grassroots issues, small business. Uh, the energy sector is again so significant to our country's economic well-being, and it's just being mismanaged from the political perspective. Well, we, it brings it brings us back to the foreign uh, the foreign investment as well as the Canadian investment, but it equates to, to jobs. Um, it equates to an enhanced uh, an enhanced sector from from all aspects from from not just economic, um, but also from the environmental uh, uh, perspective as well. And ultimately, in addition to those jobs, it equates to where we started this conversation: the investment that governments are able to provide uh, to the citizens of the province. Investments in healthcare and education and highways and all of the things people expect uh, their provincial governments to provide. And that just isn't possible. And in this case, it isn't possible across the nation as we share that wealth through a, a program called equalization 
um, if we're going to kill this industry. And that is uh, essentially what this federal government looks like they are setting out to do, regardless of the fact they've set forward uh, step forward to purchase a pipeline. Um, they need to move forward and get that pipeline built and ensure there's a regulatory uh, framework in place so that other other nation building projects can can occur and, and enhance the wealth and opportunity and the health of our nation. Premier, we have about 45 seconds. Could I have you speak to the equalization issue? Well, the equalization issue is, uh, I think, being discussed. I think it's does get discussed from time to time in provinces. Uh, we've seen it in Quebec over, over years gone by. We've seen it in, in Western Canada over years gone by. But I think it's being brought forward in the econo- from Western Canada, essentially, uh, with respect to the economic challenges uh, that we're having here. And we're still uh, a net contributor. I, I think you've seen a couple provincial elections uh, ran on, on the carbon tax, and we've seen how those have turned out. You're going to see, I think, one more uh, ran on on uh, the carbon tax in a regulatory environment, and if that is not uh, able to allow uh, our our Western Canadian sustainable energy industry to expand, um, you're going to probably see uh, an advanced discussion and, and a forced discussion on what equalization looks like as we move forward. Okay, Premier, thank you so much for the time. Good talking to you, and all the very best in 2019. To you as well, Roy. Thank you, Premier Scott Moe of Saskatchewan. Premier Ford from Ontario starts the show tomorrow on the carbon tax and the the battle Ontario will be waging with the the federal government. I have to tell you, I'm receiving, I probably get, I get several hundred emails easily each week. Some weeks it'll be five or six hundred. So I read them all. I I can't reply to all of them, but I read, read them all. And what I'm reading from... Canadians is a sense of deep concern, uh, unwillingness to put up with the status quo and demand for significant change, and there is real unhappiness with Mr. Trudeau. And Mr. Bricker uh, also spoke to uh, the fact that the Liberals have, have issues. Maybe not so much in British Columbia like the, the, the rest of the country, but it's, it's, not, it's not, the cards are not turning in Mr. Trudeau's favor. Here's one, just one email I received from Debbie. Roy, I just watched uh, about 100 oil cars go by me in the wrong direction. They are going south. I live in North Battleford, Saskatchewan. I'm just steamed because they're probably going south of the border for next to nothing. True. And as we spoke with Dan McTague at the top of the show, the um, petroleum analyst for Gasbody.com, 18 years a federal MP, we import 800,000 barrels of oil a day while we have our own, which we're not moving because we don't have the pipelines to get them. You know the story. And so the point that, uh, that that I made to Dan was, yeah, so we import oil from the United States. Is it the same oil that we sell to them at a massive discount and which caused Frank McKenna, the deputy chair of the of TD Bank, to tell us on the program a few months ago that a, a seven-year study by TD showed that this country lost $107 billion, $107 billion in revenue over a seven-year period by selling our oil at that deep discount to the United States because they're the only customer we have. Why are they the only customer we have? Because we don't have the pipelines to get the stuff to the to the ports, Tidewater, et cetera. 
And so we import 800,000 barrels a day. It's, it's lunacy. It really is. And people are getting hurt. And that's why they're angry. Because they're getting hurt. They get angry. If you got hurt, you'd get angry too. Or maybe you're one of the people who's angry. But there's frustration everywhere. There really is. Not everyone, but everywhere. So my 2019 federal election what-if question is this. What if Justin Trudeau and his Liberal Party are re-elected on October the 21st with a majority federal government based largely on the support the Liberals may have received from voters in Ontario and Quebec? If the remainder of Canada largely were to reject the Liberals, yet they form a majority government mostly predicated on Quebec and Ontario voter support, then... What happens, particularly if Alberta may have elected a UCP government with Jason Kenney as premier just a few months earlier? How might the rest of Canada react to such a very, I think, plausible scenario? Let's ask the former premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, Brian Peckford, about that. By the way, visit Mr. Peckford's, Premier Peckford's blog, Peckford42, at wordpress.com. Premier, thank you for the time. What happens if that's the scenario? I think we're back to the future. Uh, this year will be 40 years since I was elected Premier of the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. 76 and 79. And um, I think we're back to where we were then, uh, when uh, Papa Trudeau was the Prime Minister. And now Junior Trudeau is the Prime Minister. There's a lot of similarities starting to emerge to show that the federal systems divisions are being accentuated by the policies of what is obviously a Trudeau philosophy permeated through the father to the son. And it's more, it's manifests itself most particularly on the energy file as we see uh, through uh, regulation and taxation, uh, the negative effects that will have, as the National Energy Program had that Papa Trudeau brought in, now Junior Trudeau was bringing in through Bill 69, through the carbon tax, and through other regulations, the same kind of thing which will impinge upon the West's ability to participate fully in the Canadian Confederation. Secondly, let me just say how ironic it is that we're in a situation right now in 2019 where Newfoundland is not allowed to transmit its energy called electricity through a national grid so it can be sold to other Canadians. And now we have the West in Alberta unable to transmit their oil east to benefit other Canadians. What an irony we find ourselves in in 2019. So to answer your question, if in fact what you propose happens, I think we're in a very, very fragile situation as it relates to the ability of this nation to operate along the lines that was envisaged by the founders of this nation. How difficult is it to be a premier at this time with this federal government? I don't think it's any difficult than it was back in the 80s. It's just that I don't think, listening to the two premiers, and I've got a lot of respect for both of these two existing premiers that you had on your program over the last couple of days, 
uh, both Premier Mo and, and the new Premier Higgs. But if you listen, and you were very good in your questions and in trying to engage them, and very fair, very responsible, and they did express their frustrations, you know, and Higgs in saying notion rather than nation, and Mo saying, you know, do we really have a nation if one province can stop a national project? But at the end of the day, Roy, at the end of the day, they just talked about more talk. As I said, 40 years ago, when I was 36 years old and became premier of the province of Newfoundland, I'm hearing exactly the same things now as I heard then. So how far have we really come? What we need right now, Roy, in this country, more than perhaps ever before, is very, very strong provincial leadership. I think Premier Ford is beginning to show it in Ontario. And they cannot back down. They've got to act in unison in trying to develop a position which they bring to the federal government and then they sit down and hammer out a solution. But it's got to be tough. The nice approach, as Premier Mo talks about it, we need conversation. And uh, Premier Higgs talks about it, opportunities. These are great words and great concepts, but they have not worked in our country now. And what's needed is very strong political leadership at the provincial level, very strong business leadership right across the nation to bring the federal government to heel. They're getting away with a Bill 69 now, which they should not be allowed to get away with, which further complicates the business of trying to get energy projects going in this country. And the mere fact that it's still going ahead, the mere fact that they were able to pass legislation which discriminated against uh, uh, the, the Jews of this nation, for example, by bringing in a, 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 a motion which said the biggest problem we have, you know, we've really got to concentrate is Islamophobia when the biggest problem in Canada as it relates to religious uh, uh, problems, discrimination, is with anti-Semitism. So what's happening is that there's quite creep going on in this country, and most people either are not familiar with it uh, have not been seized with the issue enough, or are not, or are more on the side of the federal government or the liberal government than we think. So I think we have a real, real crisis emerging if, in fact, we end up in October uh, the way you are projecting that it's like. Well, I'm just wondering. I'm, I'm wondering, but it's a plausible scenario. It is a very plausible scenario. And if you look at the polls, uh, the Nanos polls, it still shows the Liberals with a very strong uh, majority coming in in October. And, uh, by the way, most particularly, that the Prime Minister is way ahead in who they favor as being Prime Minister than any of the other leaders. So what you, what you put on the table is a very plausible thing to happen. And I fear for this country and its ability to be competitive in this world if that happens. So now let me ask you, are you, are you at all impressed with, uh, with, with, with the Conservatives? No. Federally? No? No. And, and, and I've always been a federal Conservative. I know you have. But, uh, but no, I'm not. I, I'm very, very disappointed in them. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, back about a year ago, I wrote them, and I'm still writing for an answer, and I've contacted a whole bunch of different people to try to get answers. I actually ch- contacted the leader of the opposition's office, 
by email and left uh, a copy of the of the letter I had written to the party, and I still haven't got an answer to this day. That's in a year. Yeah, uh, you know, so, I mean, if if a former premier can't get an answer to a letter to the party that he, he, he always was a, a supporter of, I mean, what can the poor person, the ordinary person who has no, uh, uh, you know, a particular... Connection. What kind of notice yeah. are they going to get? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I, I used to. We've had Mr. Shear on this program fairly re- frequently yeah. uh, until uh, a few weeks ago. I said something which must have upset them yeah. because I, when I sent them an invitation just before Christmas yeah. and I and I sent uh, two email invitations, neither one was responded to. It's, yeah, it's well, just childish. Well, it's so I'm childish. Now I'm not surprised, but two, a number of points that uh, have come up. The one on the, uh, the Premier Higgs and notion rather than nation um, is very uh, a, a very uh, t- telling point by a new Premier. But what was even more telling in your interview with him, Roy, uh, which bears directly on what we're talking about, is that he said, I heard him say, that in his talks with the Prime Minister about Energy East, that if he made any progress with Quebec, Higgs made any progress with Quebec to come back and see the Prime Minister. <laughs> that tells I, I, I have you to all to you need again. to know, that wow. the Prime Minister of this nation, yeah. who's responsible for interprovincial trade, yeah. and that if you ever, ever went to court and tried to get that change, as I tried to do, through the Upper Churchill contract, they would slap you down. The very man who's in charge of national issues and interprovincial trade tells the Premier... If you have any luck with Quebec, come back and see me, and then I may be able to help you. <laughs> but, so that tells you all you need to know and just how badly we are now functioning as a federation. Uh, the other two points that are yeah. very important. Can you? Can, I, I have to take a break. I know we said we'd only keep you to the 27-minute mark, but can you stay a little bit longer so we I can... i got two more points I want to make, so I'll stay as long as you want me. Okay. All right. Good. Hold on. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Back to uh, Premier Brian Peckford, former Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. Premier Peckford, you wanted to make two more points. I I want to hear what they are. People will say, based upon what I've said so far in some of your program today, okay, well, what can we really do? I mean, are we so straight-jacketed that we can't do anything? Well, no, we're not, if the political will is there. Number one. The provinces formed in 2003, the Council of the Federation. That was to formalize an arrangement with all of the premiers and the territories, the three territories, to form this Council of Federation. Its object was to help develop and coordinate the provinces on policy matters so that we could have a national policy vis-a-vis then with the federal government and persuade the federal government to get involved in some of these policy initiatives. That is in place. So all the provinces need to do is to make that council more active. It does a number of things now. 
It's been in existence since 2003. This is 2019, and they're still doing reports on internal trade. So they haven't been all that effective. If it, since 2003 to now, we still don't have free trade within the provinces of Canada. But if they wanted to, and the political will was there, they could make that more effective vis-a-vis the provincial viewpoint with the federal government and make that a very effective lobbying institution or structure of this nation. Number two, there still is a Senate in this country, and it's supposed to represent the provinces. The federal government appoints the senators, but they're appointed from provinces. Well, if the provinces wanted to, and the people of Canada wanted to, we should be putting a little bit more pressure on these senators from Newfoundland, those senators from B.C., those senators from Saskatchewan and all over the country, to be more effective spokesmen for the provinces in the Senate of Canada and in the caucuses of the various provincial, uh, federal parties, where they will then have to go to the caucus and say, my God, you couldn't believe what I got uh, from our, my province yesterday or I got from the people of that province uh, the emails I got, the letters I got, the phone calls I got, uh, you know, forcing me to start to take some positions on things as it relates to the national interests of this country. That's two things that if the political will was there, we could start to do to bring some sense into national policy and to force a pipeline from Alberta to New Brunswick, to force a national grid for electricity so Newfoundland's energy is not trapped and we have to sell it to Quebec and they make 400 to 800 million a year off of it. And how, as you've said, the former Premier McKenna mentioned a study which showed the 108 billion that were made off not having the, the pipeline down to New Brunswick. So there are two structural things that if the political will was there, we could do today to try to change and modify the policies that are happening in this country now, which are injurious to us being an effective nation. I think that the uh, I think the politicians are going to be driven by the people increasingly, and I'm not talking about in the long term, Premier. I'm talking about in the short term. People have had enough. People are speaking out. They've had enough. They're 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 on the roads and, and convoys. Uh, where, where I'm hearing from people in in in, uh, in in central Canada, Ontario, not so much Quebec because we don't broadcast in Quebec, but we still have listeners online in yeah. in the province of Quebec. But I'm hearing from people who have said, "We've had enough. Uh, we we're we're not in you know, the old line. I've had enough, um, and I'm not going to take it anymore." Whatever that was from that movie Network, people have had enough. They just had enough, and well, I think I think I think that's going to become really really evident well if in fact that happens then that should manifest itself through the provinces and through a new you know a council of federation that really works yeah. and through getting on to uh, their various party leaders right in ottawa but uh, you know uh, i'm still uh, i'm still skeptical about it like i said you know 40 years ago i became premier of newfoundland and i see the same issues today only worse yeah. our debt is worse Let me ask our wait you. times are worse we now have energy that can't get east as well as electricity which can't get west what a, so what a, things have complicated. What you know? A, you know, it's like we're it's like we're competitive countries. Yes. 
It really is. It's like we're competitive countries, and so no, no wonder that there are premiers expressing concerns about the strength of the Federation. And we have a prime minister who, six days after becoming prime minister, told the New York Times his ambition was to turn Canada into the first post-national state. So here, here, we, here we are. Uh, premier Peckford... What's more sad about all that is, is that constitutionally the federal government has the powers today to ensure that we do have a, a, a vibrant national economy and that, and that the economy does work, not like it is now. It's always, uh, it's, it's always really... A pleasure to speak with you, and I learn uh, a lot when I speak with you, Premier Peckford. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much for the time. And and I will call on you again, you know that. <laughs> I'm, I'm familiar with that uh, approach now. <laughs> Thanks, Premier. All the best to you. Thank you. Premier Brian Peckford. It's peckford42.wordpress.com. Check out his blog. It is excellent. Um, controversial, for sure. Well, why do we say that? If it's not if it's not if it's not toast with with butter and 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 jam, then it's controversial. If it's not yogurt, it's controversial. It's not. It's point of view. It's people doing what our right is to do. Freedom of expression. My good friend, for many years now, Dan McTague, 18 years a liberal member of parliament, now the chief petroleum analyst at gasbuddy.com. And uh, Dan, happy new year, and thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, a happy new year, Roy, and it's an honor to be here as your first for 2019. It's a milestone for me, and for obvious reasons. Well, it's great to have you here. And I, 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 over the uh, Christmas and, and New Year holiday, I was watching your Twitter feed, and I was really fascinated with the questions that you got and the, the answers that you provided. And it seemed at times that people were just not ready and willing to accept what to me seemed to be completely reasoned answers, but... But but anyway, I thought, I have to talk to Dan about this. Let's talk about where we are with our gasoline prices, where we're going, carbon tax, uh, what, what's it going to do to us? What's it going to cost for us to be mobile in this country? What's it going to cost a family to be mobile going forward in 2019? I'm going to ask you about that. But I, I, I saw a tweet this morning from uh, HGIR1, I think it says, and it's to you. Really? You don't get it? The amount of tax you pay depends exactly on your fuel use, so you have incentive to use less. The amount you get back is not affected by your fuel use, so the incentive is intact. But the average person is no worse off overall. Simple. This, of course, refers to uh, Minister McKenna, the environment minister, stating on Twitter that 80% of the Canadians who pay carbon tax are going to get back more money than they paid in. And I I replied with one word tweet, magic. you answered this the particular tweet with, that's totally illogical. Where's the incentive to use less if you're simply rebated the, the same amount? The practical purpose of carbon taxes are to reduce emissions by raising taxes steadily. By the way, do you actually believe Ottawa spin that you get more than you pay in rebates? Talk to us about that, Mr. McTagg. <laughs> well, thank you. And uh, it does suggest to me that uh, there is obviously uh, a number or are a number of people out there who believe that the federal program uh, is the best thing since sliced bread. Let me go back a step because about 18 years ago or 19 years ago, you and I uh, did several interviews 
on something that I had done that no member of parliament had done before me and none since, and that is uh, an energy rebate. In fact, there were two. Uh, so I have a bit of experience, uh, good and bad, uh, with what happened. Uh, the idea behind that at the time, Roy, uh, and you'll recall uh, it was also done with my uh, very, very good friend who happens to be one of your contributors during the day uh, with uh, no other fact that uh, Linda Leatherdale and I had worked on finding a way in order to get the GST, which is applied to the higher price and other taxes, to be rebated to Canadians, and that did, in fact, work. It's based on that that I think it's crystal clear to me that this particular rollout by the Minister of Environment and Climate Change and what and, and so on uh, is, in fact, uh, fraught with uh, a number of inconsistencies. And the first one, which I pointed out this morning, as I have for several months, is that if the behaviour has to be changed. If somehow we believe that climate change is because of emissions and those emissions are by consumers, then the last thing you want to do is to simply uh, put a tax uh, on somebody at one on one given day and rebate it the next. That will defeat the purpose of which you want to achieve, which is to punish people for driving vehicles or driving whatever type of product or using whatever pro- product uh, has emissions at the end of the day. And the second part of that is that the federal government suggests, A, that it's revenue neutral. Now, we know that it's not because they keep the GST, as they have been doing in provinces currently that have a carbon tax. Uh, so that would be uh, Alberta, British Columbia. And uh, they also kept a portion of it when Ontario had a cap in trade. Uh, so 13%, of which they, again, collect 5%, and the same thing for Quebec. So the federal government can make a big argument uh, in defense about how they won't keep a penny, but we already know from... Uh, from 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 a perspective of, uh, of tradition and history, that they have been in fact keeping that money, and of course the other part, which is as I mentioned, illogical. Uh, beyond what you want to do with a carbon tax, it seems to me that the idea that somehow this is going to produce more money is absolute magic and make believe. It's 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 bizarre that uh, not many have actually picked up on this, but. If you're telling people that they're going to get more money back than what they contribute or they purchase in terms of fuel and home heating, uh, someone has got to pay for it. it money doesn't grow on trees. So I guess as things start to roll out on April the 1st, and we in Ontario get a five cent increase, the West, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan will see 4.8. Of course, much higher for diesel. So we're talking 6.1 for diesel which, of course, is at the basis of our economy, uh, everything that moves, transportation, fuel, municipal governments, read, of course, higher taxes on the municipal side, uh, public transit, uh, and even the stuff that gets your product to market uh, for, for groceries. We'll all see a higher input cost, which means inflation, which means a higher cost of uh, living at a time, of course, in which uh, many people are finding it hard to make ends meet. So on the surface, we can have a big discussion about whether you support or don't support this, I think the real numbers will start to become quite uh, telling for most once you have to start to pay for it. As we saw in Ontario only six and a half months ago, Ontarians thoroughly, absolutely, and objectively rejected the uh, the idea of a carbon tax. Yeah, they did. And uh, and we're going to be speaking, as, as I said earlier, with uh, Premier Ford tomorrow about that. What's, sure. what's going to happen to the average Canadian family's uh, requirements for fuel to get their to get to, to live their lives, to do what they need to do in order to gather at home and go out and do the things they have to do, and you know, mom drives here, dad drives yep. there, the kids drive, or they've they're driven. What what's going to happen to, uh, to to their budget, to their fuel budget? Well, I'm one of them. I have five kids, of which two are at university, but uh, three of them still at home, and uh, I use about seventy five liters a week. And I'm sorry, I have to. I have, I have no choice. That's going to run me about five hundred bucks extra a year. 
Uh, I haven't taken into account the cost of diesel, which will drive up my grocery prices, but I expect that that will probably be about a 3% hike in terms of overall cost of living. Uh, So 3% of whatever I'm purchasing in a given year, uh, looking perhaps another $700, uh, not to mention my natural gas, my propane, my furnace oil, whatever I'm using to keep myself warm, uh, the direct costs are probably going to push towards well over $1,000, which is more than the rebate, by the way. Uh, and of course, uh, there's no uh, guarantee that uh, you know an income uh, challenge uh, will will in fact uh, not be imposed. So that you know certain people under a certain amount, as I mentioned earlier, the two energy rebates uh, did not necessarily go to the people who actually put the money out. That's what concerns me. But it does mean an outlay potentially by 2022 of over a thousand dollars per every family. It also means uh, significant higher prices for just about everything you touch. Because again, we're hitting diesel a lot harder. Roy, put in perspective, using the HST and uh, 13% and 15% model, so it'd be the Maritimes in Ontario, uh, you're looking between now and uh, April 1st, 2022, an additional net 12.5 cents a litre for gasoline, an additional 15.2 cents net for diesel. That uh, is tectonic. It's, it's, it's likely to have a major shock in terms of inflation uh, and potentially uh, slow down the economy. Um, is there anything good coming out of this? Well, look, I don't want to get into the debate of whether we need to or not to. Mark Jacquard, one of the best environmental economists we have in the country, in the Globe and Mail two weeks ago, wrote, we don't need to do this. We can look at smart regulations. The same way you and I have had discussions in previous uh, iterations uh, here, uh, you know, across the country about the vehicle efficiencies and emissions. In 10 years, we've seen vehicles emissions less than half of what they were on models that were built, say, in 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. The, the industry will make the corrections as necessary, and it doesn't require a carbon tax to do it. So and at the end of the day, I'm one of those that says this is useless, irrelevant, potentially frustrating, and it's certainly going to hit and impact everybody's bottom okay, line. Hold, hold that thought, Dan. Hold, hold that thought. We'll come back. It's not enough. We'll come back with Dan McTay. The, let me ask you this, and come back to where we were. I, I don't want to miss <laughs> out on this point. The United States has no carbon tax, right? That's right. People of the state of Washington have the most supposedly the most politically progressive people in in the United States. Maybe tied with Oregon, um, and they have twice now rejected by way of referendum a carbon tax. Setting that aside, use that as a sidebar. How and you you do a lot of work with uh, with 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 uh, Americans and and you know American media, media, right? Of course, yes. Most of my stuff is now American media. Oh, so. <laughs> So when you look at what's going on in the United States with consumers and their need for fuel, gasoline, diesel, no carbon tax, none on the horizon. It's not going to happen. The Democrats weren't going to have one either had Hillary Clinton been elected. At least that's what they said. How how much more advantageous is life for the American consumer motorist than it is for, for us? In so many ways, well beyond what I tried to fight for 20 years ago, which was more competition at the refinery level. I mean, the Americans would never tolerate in one fell swoop uh, uh, an increase in gas taxes, carbon or otherwise, that would equal or uh, would uh, would amount to uh, what is their current federal tax of 18 cents a gallon. That's about four or five cents a liter. Uh, that's exactly what's being proposed in this first tranche on April the 1st. And do you, I, by, by the way, sorry to interrupt, but do you agree... That this is the soft landing rollout of the carbon tax, and if there's a majority liberal government on the 22nd of October of this year, look out. 
Well, yeah, I do. Because if they get a license to do this, they will use... Uh, look, they weren't very clear about what they were planning to do. They're saying a, a price on pollution. Oh, yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm all for cleaning up the environment and getting rid of litter and, uh, you know, uh, environmental stewardship and things like that. But I had no idea they meant that CO2, which is an inert gas, would be the object of that uh, of that rather... Uh, you know, that uh, odd term yeah. uh, and, and very difficult to determine. No one really thought of that when uh, when, when it came about. So, right. so let, let know, me get you back to the U.S. Prepared to double it. Let me get back. Let me get you back to the United States versus us, the American consumer versus us. Well, the American consumer is uh, substantially ahead of us. Not only that, they have well-funded organizations, uh, environmental organizations going from there that have been successful in, in blocking Canadian pipelines, which, of course, increased. The, uh, the weakness of the Canadian dollar and cost you and I an extra 15 cents a litre. So the gap continues to widen. Americans get our cheap oil. Uh, we continue to pay much more for our, our, our products uh, because of the weak Canadian dollar and because we have to pay international prices for all of our commodities. And we have less revenue, so we're going into greater debt. We have fewer people working. And we're seeing now what I think to be the beginnings of a, a disintegration of our federation. Uh, don't get me started here, Roy, because I think it's far more serious than... Uh, some here in the East want to uh, want to. Hey, Dan, uh, Blaine Higgs, we can can we find that clip from uh, Premier Higgs from New Brunswick when he was on the air with me the final weekend before Christmas? Uh, the Premier of New Brunswick said, "We have to ask ourselves: Is Canada a notion or a nation?" That's a pre- federal premier, and Premier Scott Moe is going to be with me in the next hour from Saskatchewan. Uh, as the battle was going on about uh, uh, about uh, Trans Mountain between British Columbia and, and Alberta and the federal government was involved, uh, Premier Mo asked the question, do we still have a country? If one province, in that case it was British Columbia, can make the decisions to you know, essentially derail TMX, uh, do we still have a country? When, I don't take this, this lightly, this whole idea no. about our federation being uh, in, no, under and, stress. And but, I mean, if you it, another tweet by the Premier this morning, uh, Premier Mo, I think was very important. It was based on work that Chris Sims of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation BC had done. And her point was to reveal the fact that after 10 years of carbon taxes, commi- uh, emissions in, 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 uh, in, in uh, British Columbia continue to rise with no appreciable effect on the environment. So, look, this is not working. And even if that's where you want to begin, that's where the premise of your uh, policy begins. It ends where we've already had experience here in Canada. It's a colossal failure, which risks undermining the fabric of the country. So the Americans are in better shape, and they get our oil so cheaply. Um, and 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 we're not in control. We really we we really have we aren't using our energy sector anywhere near to its capacity. We know that we're importing eight hundred thousand barrels of foreign oil each and every day, including today. Right. Every single day. And I, I remind people on Twitter at the Roy Green Show quite regularly, today's another 800,000 barrels of foreign oil, which is perfectly fine with the, with the federal government. Uh, it's, and U.S. It, oil. Uh, I'm sorry? And U.S. oil. And U.S. And US oil. Half a million barrels well, of U.S. Exactly. oil a day. Yeah, so it could be our oil going to the United States, which is then shipped back to us. Exactly. But they then ship it back with a higher value. Of course. They're getting, of course. Uh, they're getting international prices. Of course. For the oil. They get it at a 40% not. discount, and then we send, sell it back to us at, without the discount. It's only in Canada. What a pity. But, I mean, the fact is that uh, there is no country that subjects itself to a carbon tax, which isn't well thought out, which won't reduce emissions, which is going to cost everybody a lot more, and which is likely to lead to uh, dislocation, economic and social, uh, not to mention the national finances. Folks, wake up. Hey, hey Dan, <laughs> uh, I thought during the uh, – let me just play you what uh, Premier 
Higgs said, this premier of, the new premier of New Brunswick on this program just before Christmas, and we were talking about the Canadian Federation, and he had, had expressed and written about his concerns about the Federation being under stress after attending the, his very first First Minister's conference. Here's what he said. It, it makes you wonder if, our, if, if Canada is a nation or a notion. That's from a sitting Canadian Premier. Well, and so my so 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 the question here's the question that I was thinking about over the over which we're going to ask an hour after the next one. Here's the what if question. What if on the 21st of October the Trudeau government is returned with a majority, and that majority is largely predicated on the votes from Quebec and Ontario? I'm not saying that we're the only people voting for the Trudeau government. But they would underpin, provide the foundation, a very strong foundation for a Trudeau majority government victory would come from Quebec and Ontario. What do you think the reaction will be in the rest of Canada, particularly Alberta, if they happen to have just a couple of months earlier have elected a UCP government with Jason Kenney as the premier? Potentially another government in BC as well. I'm not sure. I I, I hate to think of what could happen because that would be... uh, really the development of the perfect storm. Not only would you have an economic problem, you would also now be facing a constitutional crisis. But don't you uh, think we should be talking about it, thinking about yeah. it, having it enter the, the conversation, having it enter, enter our thinking process so we don't find ourselves suddenly facing the, the kind of uh, anger that I remember seeing in the province of Quebec in the 1970s? Oh, in the 70s and, and 90s. Uh, you know, Roy, uh, you, you mentioned Premier Higgs. Uh, not days after that particular interview or his first uh, commentary, uh, and coming from a province that said no to the carbon tax, even the Liberal government there of uh, Brian Gallant before said, no, we don't want to hit people. The, one of the saddest things I saw at Christmas uh, was the fact that uh, organizations within the province of New Brunswick had pointed out that 25,000 people had sought the help of food banks and charities to make ends meet. Yeah. This in a province where Energy East might have raised about five to 6,000 permanent jobs. Yeah. To me, that's a disgrace, and it does lie at the, at the feet of the federal Liberal government. This is on their watch. They vandalized the Energy East proposal. They changed the rules of the game, and they uh, basically turtled for one province. Actually, elites within one province, because Quebec is increasing its capacity of using Western Canadian oil via the reversal under the Harper, Harper government of, uh, of Line 9 Enbridge. Yeah, and don't forget, the Quebecers recently told the Leger poll for the Montreal Economic Institute, and we spoke to the Economic Institute representatives about this. The Quebecers, the average Quebecer, not the elite, and the, the MEI rep pointed this out, the average Quebecer wants Alberta oil, wants Western oil, 66% of them. The next biggest number who want oil from the United States is 7%. Do they want Western? Uh, do they want pipelines with Western oil? Yeah, it's forty-five percent of Quebecers, but that's massively ahead of uh, of the next option, which I think was trucks, and and that was like four or five percent. So so the average Quebecer wants Alberta and wants Western oil and wants the pipelines. Um, I I worry about what could happen in this country toward the end of 2019. Let me ask you one more quick question. And, and I thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Not at all, right. So you had a lot to do with uh, foreign affairs matters as a liberal member of parliament. You were the critic, right? I was. I was uh, uh, the uh, first uh, privy councillor uh, put in charge of Canadians abroad after my work on 
several files, including uh, William Sampson, including uh, Abdullah Al Malki, and several others. Uh, okay. uh, and uh, with the with the with the direct uh, involvement and blessing of the Prime Minister. So, so let me ask you this then. Let me just read you a few lines from a global news story by Abigail Biman, um, he- head of Canadian delegation, says he doesn't intend to bring up detainees with Chinese officials. The head of a delegation of Canadian parliamentarians heading to China this weekend says the detainment of two Canadians is not on the agenda for discussion with Chinese officials. Quote, if they bring it up, we, we're we well prepared, well, we're well prepared to answer any questions they may have and to deal with any misunderstandings that may exist, end quote. Senator Joseph Day told Global News before boarding a plane to Shanghai on Friday. The Prime Minister and the Foreign Affairs Minister have been calling for the immediate release of the two Canadians who were detained in December over national security concerns but have not been charged. So the Liberals have no no intention, none whatsoever, of bringing this up with uh, the Chinese government. The lone Conservative uh, MP, the story continues on the trip, however, is prepared to bring up the issue of the detained Canadians with the Chinese. Quote, I expect that the issue will be raised. It's inevitable, end quote. Michael Cooper told Global News. You say what, Mr. McTague? Well, I've done it uh, in the case of, of uh, Hussein Jalil, and I did it as an opposition member, and I brought new Democratic members with me. One, Brian Massey, so he's still an MP, can okay. confirm. And, Brian, and uh, of course, uh, Dave Van Kesteren, member for uh, Chatham, uh, uh, will also confirm. I brought a delegation of nine members uh, to China, and we raised the issue. First so is there, is, there, is there any excuse, acceptable no. uh, rationale for the decision that they've announced? But, no, not only should that be the case, I mean, the Prime Minister should be on the flight with those six members. Yeah, exactly. Uh, forcefully. Uh, but, you know, again, uh, when it comes to consular matters, uh, Canadians really are really taking into consideration. Yeah. My friend, thank you so much for the time. Where is Justin Trudeau, by the way? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, uh, who knows, maybe uh, brushing up on uh, on uh, new lines and slogans, selfies, uh, maybe uh, out buying a new pair of socks, or uh, who knows, uh, sobbing at yeah. uh, some new uh, international uh, uh, concern. It's always good to speak with you. Thank you so much, Dan, and a happy 2019 to you and your family. And to you, my friend. Thanks, Ray. Dan McTague on The Roy Green Show. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.